perhaps you want to stretch out a hand. Father, we thank you for Cheryl. We thank you for the call on her life. We thank you that she has stepped into it and accepted this new adventure, you saying onwards, upwards. And you called her to ordained ministry. And even now as she preaches, as she opens God's word, would that be so true and clear, both to her and to us. So we say that we love her. And will you bless her with the fullness of your grace. And will you change us this morning. As she opens up Romans 8 to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Lydia. Um, yes, we're in Romans 8, if you want to um, look it up in your Bibles. So in the church Bibles, it's, I think, page 1071. So we're going from verse 18. So it's Romans 8, verse 18. 1071. So Paul writes... I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For on this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, We wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we are, as uh, Lydia said, we're continuing our series today, sort of an apologetic series, looking at the truth of God and how it speaks into some of the questions um, in society. And today we're talking about suffering. So this is something we, um, maybe not the case with all sermons, but suffering is something we all know about. It's a common experience. We all suffer. And certainly by the time you reach my age, um, you will have suffered probably uh, bereavement, serious illness, maybe fractured relationships, maybe the, the uh, death of a few childhood dreams that are clearly never going to happen now. Perhaps even more painful than that, though, is we will also probably have experienced coming alongside somebody else, perhaps somebody that we love dearly, in their suffering. We're also very aware in the daily news of the suffering in the wider world, um, 
Lydia mentioned that I, I work for a, a charity, it's a children's charity that works with vulnerable children all around the world. And uh, really children who suffer to a degree that we couldn't really, I, I don't think, I personally can't really begin to imagine what it must be like. Um, we're working, for example, with children who are young children trafficked into prostitution, sold into early marriage, children still in this day and age accused of witchcraft, ostracized, abused, and even murdered for that lie. Children abducted and traumatized and, and forced to carry guns and become sh soldiers. It's perhaps not surprising in the face of all of that, that the issue of suffering can be a real sticking point for non-Christians. I don't know whether you've had this conversation, but I certainly have with someone who doesn't believe in God and maybe the first or often the most passionate repost they'll give is, I cannot believe in a God who allows these awful things to happen to innocent people. And I think probably if we are honest, we might also sometimes think that. We might also have felt in the middle of our own suffering, why is God letting this happen? What is going on? Why is, and why is this happening to me? This is often a, a strong feeling that we have, or why is it happening to them? So theologians call this the problem of evil. And this comes in three parts. So the first part is, if God is all loving, the second part is, if God is all powerful, third part is, why is there evil and suffering in the world? So the idea of this is, how can those three things logically hold together? The argument would be, if God is all loving, he will want to stop the evil and suffering in the world. But he can't be. He must, he can't be all powerful if that is the case. Because if he was all powerful, he would be able to stop it. So God is either all loving and wants to stop the evil and suffering, but is not all powerful and can't. Or, second option, God is all powerful and can stop the evil and suffering, but just can't be bothered to do it and so is not all loving. Or maybe he's not all loving and is not all powerful either. So the common theological response to this seemingly intractable problem is something called free will. So we know that when the Lord created us, he created us with free will. Simply means that we get to make our own choices. We've not been pre-programmed. We literally get to decide moment to moment what we do. The fall in the garden happened precisely because of free will. If Adam and Eve had not had free will, if they'd not had the option to choose, they could have ignored the enemy and all his temptations, and they could have chosen to obey God and not touch the fruit of the tree. But because they had free will, they chose to disobey God. They ate of the fruit, 
and evil and consequently suffering rush into the world. And it's really not very long. I think it's literally you turn over the page of your Bible and the next thing we have is Cain killing his brother Abel. And really it all kind of falls apart from that point on. And much of the suffering in the world is similarly caused by humans. And again, theologians call this moral evil. This is the evil we do to each other. And before we go on, we should probably just note, or at least I can speak for myself, that the other isn't somebody else. We all, intentionally or not intentionally, sin and cause suffering to other people. None of us go through life without doing that. So we are part of the problem, and we have to accept that. But there is also suffering that is not caused by human beings. This could be even more puzzling. And that's what theologians would call natural evil. So this would include the diseases that we and our loved ones will suffer from, and it includes all the natural disasters and all the horror that they bring with them. But this also is caused by the fall. So we see that creation itself is also fallen. So in verse 22, Paul talks that the, the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childhood, really from that moment in the garden right up to now, and will continue growing, groaning until Christ comes again. So given all this pain, we might reasonably ask, well, this has all been caused by free will. Why did God give us free will? Seems a little bit of a kind of a, a rookie error. The problem with taking free will out of the, occasion, uh, of the uh, situation is that it completely undoes, undoes the whole point of why God created us. So God created us purely and simply out of joy and love because he wants to be in loving relationship with us forever. That's, that is it. End of story. That's the only point of his creating us. In order to love him in the way that he wants us to love him, we need to be able to do that freely. It needs to be our choice. We all know that love that is not given freely is not love at all. So there's no way that the Lord can have this creation for the purpose he's created it unless we have free will. It's kind of like an unfortunate side effect of that, that free will allows us to make the wrong choices and the choice to sin. And this is all very, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm studying a lot of theology at the moment. I'm not, uh, not unappreciative of, um, of theologians. But I think still, this, this is all true. All of that is true. And all of that actually is helpful. But I think still, certainly in the, in the sort of pit of my stomach, I still have some why questions. You know, like, this doesn't answer everything. So, you know, my why questions would be like, why do more, more people, uh, some people suffer more than others, for example? Why do innocent people have to suffer? Why do children have to suffer? You know, and, and if you can't sort out the free will thing about humans suffering and causing pain, could you not at least sort out the natural disasters and the diseases part? And the answer to those why questions is simply that we don't know why. Because God doesn't tell us. We can only understand as much of God as he chooses to reveal to us. And there is nothing in the Bible that tells us why 
fundamentally and, and absolutely why suffering occurs. In the book of Job, some of you may remember, uh, Job is this incredibly uh, godly and righteous man. And suddenly, just this, it's like the, um, you know, like the Pharaoh and the, everything just falls on him, all this suffering. Everything bad you can think of that could happen to the guy happens to him. And he asks God, he asks him outright, as we would, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? And God actually himself answers him. He speaks out of the storm, it says. But he doesn't give the sort of answer that Job or, or we might expect or hope for. What he says to Job in answer to the question of why is this happening to me, God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And the point that he's making here is that God is so far above us. We cannot know his mind. We tend to want him to uh, think and act like we do. But uh, and it's a great mercy he doesn't. We are called as Christians not to understand God. We are called as Christians, despite not understanding, to trust him. So instead of, of focusing on, on this issue of suffering as an intellectual problem, instead of like driving ourselves mad with the why question, I'd like to, to suggest that we just look briefly at a different question, which is, what is God doing about suffering? Not why does it exist, but what is God doing about suffering? Uh, John Wyatt is um, uh, an author who, who's who asks a similar question, he says, suffering is not a question which demands an answer, but a mystery which demands a presence. So suffering is not a question which demands an answer, but a mystery which demands a presence. So where is God? Where is God present in our suffering? To answer that question, we have to look first at the cross. All of creation's suffering, all of my suffering, all of your suffering, in the past, whatever suffering we're going through right now, whatever suffering we will go through, all of that hung on the cross with Jesus Christ. He took it all onto the cross. And there he defeated it. So ultimately, suffering is no longer. That, that is not where we're going to end up. The, the last words that Jesus speaks in, in John's gospel before he takes his final breath is, it is finished. Suffering is finished. We live in the now and not yet, so we suffer still from its death throes, but ultimately, it is finished. This means that suffering is only temporary. And this is so important for us as Christians. We know that there will come a day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, as Paul says elsewhere, a new heaven and earth of which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has imagined 
what God has prepared for those who love him. It will be so glorious, so perfect and so wonderful. We can't, our, our minds are too small to imagine it. And this is important because the it tells us that life is fleeting. In the middle of whatever we're going through, we have the surety of that, that moment in paradise that will come. And we know that our suffering is only temporary, but we also know that our suffering is not all there is. We don't have that surety. If we don't know that we're going to another place, then we might think this is all there is. This is life. This is all life is. No, this is this life. But we will be in eternity, in the new heaven, in the new earth, which is, to use a current phrase, that is our forever home. This is not our forever home. This is our temporary home. Our forever home is the new heaven and the new earth. As Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. We're not citizens of this world, we are citizens of the next. And this interestingly, and this is oh, I think why Paul speaks as he does, it was this outlook, this focus on Christ rather than what's happening right now, that actually was what the early church was focused on. The early church was far more focused on future glory than it was on, on present sufferings. So Paul starts this passage, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Because Jesus had told them explicitly, you probably remember, he said to the disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But he also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. So the answer to suffering for the early church was Christ's return. Paul says in verse 23, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. By contrast, I think we live in and we can't help but be influenced by a culture around us that is totally focused on this world and this life. And whose assessment of God, I think, is probably dictated by how happy or not happy people are in this life. So God is either good or bad, or exists or doesn't exist, depending on happiness. Happiness is, is, is the ultimate pursuit of, uh, of modern culture, and we have the Enlightenment to thank for that. So this is a culture that seems to, I you know, get the impression that some people imagine that God is this old man in the sky, he's doing the smiting thing. Um, you know, he's depending on which side of the bed he got out of. We might have a good day or a bad day. Maybe he's, um, he's, he's like, he has this uh, celestial fridge on which is pinned this reward chart and we get stickers for whether we're good or bad and we get rewarded or not or, um, accordingly. But uh, I want to quote from a, a guy called Mike Higton and he says, our view is very different. The power in which Christians trust when they say God is love is not a power that crashes in, all guns blazing, like the savior in a Hollywood blockbuster. It is a power that works through weakness by becoming incarnate and by dying. And in the context of our own suffering, Jesus' suffering is key because it means that he's not above our experience, he's not above our suffering, he has first-hand experience of what we're going through. He probably has suffered in more different ways, actually, than, than, we, uh, than we will. He also was cold and hungry and homeless, persecuted, 
abandoned, ridiculed, lonely, betrayed, falsely accused, experienced the most horrific physical and mental pain, and in his hour of greatest need, he felt forsaken by his Father God. As we might feel in our hour of greatest need, where are you, God? I think his heart breaks for our suffering. Um, I had a very uh, kind of direct experience of this quite a few years ago now. Um, the charity I work for, the guy who founded it, his favorite prayer was, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And so occasionally at work, when we're praying in meetings, we'll use that prayer. Um, but I had been, uh, myself and my team had been in Bangkok for the week. We were just I was closing the final Friday evening uh, meeting with a prayer, and I prayed this prayer, which I prayed before. Lord, please break our hearts for the things that break your heart. And the next thing I knew, I was pouring, you know, tears, blubbing, crying. It's very embarrassing. I never cried in a meeting at work before in my life. Um, cried and cried, kind of ebbed away under control. It was all fine. Um, we dispersed off, you know, to get ready to go to the airport. I'd stopped crying. About 15 minutes later, I started crying again. Um, I, just, I was remembering all these children that we'd met in Bangkok that week and the things that they were going through. And, and my heart was really breaking for them. Um, and then that kind of ebbed off and that was okay. And then we got to the airport, I started crying again. I had to go to the toilet and hide in the toilets and cry and cry. Um, it literally just came every time it, it stopped. It would stop for about 10 minutes or so, but then it would come back. And I remembered all these stories that I had read, children I'd met in other places. Just kept, my heart was really uh, breaking. I was on the plane, it's like an 11 hour journey back overnight. Cried all through the night. The poor man next to me, I think was drinking more heavily than usual. <laughs> but I just could not stop. So we get home on Saturday morning and it's a little bit better, carries on. I literally went on in this way. I hardly slept Saturday night either. I finally stopped crying it was Sunday evening. Hasn't happened to me since, but the feeling I came away with after that was, oh my goodness, if my tiny hard little heart you know, can break that much. Imagine how much the heart of God breaks. He sees everything. He sees every child. It's just a, a, a taste of how much we, we think that he is remote and he doesn't care. It really isn't true. So in our suffering, Christ is, um, as Mark Scott puts it, I think very usefully, he talks about Christ is both in the ditch with us and outside of the ditch, helping us. So he's in the ditch with us and outside the ditch, helping us. Christ has promised to be with us always. Again, Jesus said before he left his disciples, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And in the midst of suffering, even when we can't quite see him all the time or feel him all the time, sometimes when we feel like we're hanging on literally just with our fingertips, he is holding us close. Even when we actually feel like we've, we've let go altogether, he never lets go of us. 
And for those of us who have perhaps, and, and I have certainly done this, those of us who have perhaps have looked back over our lives at past suffering and thought, where were you? And you can feel quite angry at that point. Where the were you? I wanted to share um, something that was written by a Franciscan writer, um, Susan Pinchford, and, and she speaks to this. She um, shares this, a little bit of her experience of being in Ghana. Um, the coast line of Ghana, you probably know, has got a lot of um, historic slave trade-related sites. So she, this describes um, her visiting um, an area where the slaves used to be kept before they were put on a boat to the Americas. So it's kind of a prison. Uh, so she says, at Cape Coast Castle, the tour started in the men's dungeon. This was right under the Anglican church. A nice touch, I thought. The guide pointed to a mark on the wall about two and a half feet off the floor. He explained that when the dungeon was excavated, from the floor to this mark was a mixture of old chains and shackles and solidified human excrement. The guide then took us into the women's dungeon and explained that periodically the women would be paraded naked before the governor of the castle. When he had made his selection, the soldiers would clean her up and give her enough food to keep her from passing out when they'd sent her to the governor's quarters and she'd be returned to the dungeon afterward. Women who resisted the sexual advances of any authorities were put into special cells and subjected to even worse conditions than before. Men who resisted captivity were locked into the cell of the condemned, where they were left without food, water, or ventilation until the last one was dead. Only then would it be considered safe for the guards to go in and remove the bodies. My tour group included an Italian man, a farmer, when we reached the Dutch Reformed Church, our guide joked about how the Europeans thought that since they kept God in this room, he wouldn't see what was going on outside. At this point, the Italians stopped the guide and demanded to know, where was God when all this was going on? The guide shrugged, but the man was not to be put off and kept asking in ever angrier tones, where was God? I wanted to answer him. I wanted to tell him that God was here in this place, being raped and branded and shackled, forced to lie on bricks covered with excrement and vomit and blood, that God wept and agonized with every single soul who passed through this place, and that he subjected himself to the full weight of mankind's brutality because of his immense immeasurable love that he holds all the suffering and grief of the world in his heart, where his touch is the only thing powerful enough to heal wounds as deep as these. And that this loving and healing is something of what is meant by redemption, a love so powerful that it can right the most grievous wrongs. I wanted to tell him all these things, but I don't know how to say them in Italian. And I wondered if he would have heard them if I had. So Christ is in the ditch with us. But he also said he's outside the ditch helping us. 
as we read in the reading and as, as um, Lydia prayed. When Christ died and ascended, where did he go? The Bible tells us he went to sit at the right hand of God. What is he doing there? He is praying for us. He prays for us all the time. Amazing. He also sent the Spirit to be with us, so he did not leave us alone. A Spirit that comforts us and also prays for us when we do not have the words. Just a final way in which, in which he helps us as well, I want to touch on is verse 28, where it says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So one of the ways he does this is through our own suffering is to build compassion in us. Our own experience of suffering can move us to want to help others, particularly those who have suffered in the same way. Another way in which God can work good if we will let him out of our suffering is to deepen our understanding of him, to deepen our faith in him. One of the really frightening things about suffering, or certainly I find about suffering, is that it makes us so vulnerable. You know, we have no control, which is terrifying. But Susan Pitchford, again, suggests that suffering because of this, more than any other human experience, is able to destroy our illusion that we control the course of events in our lives. Suffering is able to topple the idol of self-sufficiency, inviting us to realize that we are not now, and never were, calling the shots. So, where does this leave us? It is God and God only who is in control. It is God only who knows why suffering exists. But it is also God only who is perfect love. And Paul says that this means that for now we can only see through a glass darkly. Now we can only know in part. But then we will finally understand. And as it says in Revelation, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. All will be put right, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. To close, I just wanted to quote Marilyn Robinson, who comments on this, I think, really beautifully in her book, Gilead. So she writes, St. Augustine says that the Lord loves each of us as an only child. And that has to be true. He will wipe every tear himself from our eyes. And it takes nothing from the loveliness of that verse to say that is exactly what will be required 